The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Finding qualified employees can be very difficult, Rishi. We know this. We do. I mean, we have just the right people, but it's not always easy to find just the right people. But ZipRecruiter makes it a heck of a lot easier. They do this by sending your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. No, they have some powerful matching technology. They're able to scan thousands and thousands of resumes to find the right people with the right experience for the job you're posting and invite them to apply to your job. You don't need to have Josh Lyman waiting in the room trying to find out if Joe Quincy's a Republican. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on there get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. That makes a lot of sense. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's free at ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-E-S-T-W-I-N-G, West Wing. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about On K. It's episode 14 of the fifth season. It was written by John Wells, directed by Alex Graves, and it first aired on the 18th day of the second month in the year 2004. The NBC official synopsis and the TV Guide synopsis, both of them are wrong, I think. Hmm. The TV Guide one begins, uh, a Navy fighter collides with a North Korean jet and the U.S. crew is missing. The Warner Brothers official synopsis says, when five crew members of an airborne Thunder Chief are shot down by North Korean jets near the hostile country, President Bartlett dispatches a Navy SEAL team to retrieve them. But in both cases, that's not the case. Well, you know, it speaks to something that did pique my interest, uh, which is why and how did the crew go down? Yeah. Because the only mention that I'm aware of in the sit room is that a MiG, a Korean MiG, was off their wing as close as 10 feet. Here's what General Alexander says. An E-2C Hawkeye was being harassed by two North Korean MiGs over the Sea of Japan. The MiGs had made two non-firing passes, one less than 10 feet off his wing. The crew make And then there's no actual direct indication of what forced them either to eject or why they went down. And uh, it seems clear that the people in the sit room are concerned about North Korea becoming aware of these down fighters. So clearly they didn't shoot them down or right. they would know that there had been military uh, interaction. The whole thing is, is a little bit odd and perhaps intentionally so. Yeah. Let me read what the rest of the official synopsis says. President Bartlett dispatches a Navy SEAL team to retrieve them, prompting Leo to recall his own harrowing experience when he was downed as a pilot over North Vietnam. Leo's good friend and fellow flyer saved Leo's life and now is in trouble for allegedly paying bribes to defense contractors to obtain military contracts. Meanwhile, CJ accepts the challenge of dueling on live television with an opinionated conservative talk show host, Taylor Reed. Who refuses to put a space between his first and last names. <laughs> On his yeah, show's Chiron. Exactly. Josh fumes when he briefs the president about a contested tax cut for stay-at-home mothers and is undercut by brash young intern Ryan. And the commander-in-chief balks at posing for his official portrait they left out again. Yeah, good point. Now back to the, I think, intentional obfuscation about what actually went down. And I think it's a way to protect the integrity of the cold open. Now, I think, uh, you know, we, we will later learn that what we're seeing is what happened uh, over Vietnam in the air. Yeah. And I think the idea of the cold open is going straight from that to the sit room. We think we've seen what happened over Korea. Right. So it's giving us a scenario that can't be confirmed in the sit room because they weren't shot down. Right. So I, I think, I assume that's why it's all a little bit confusing. It's yeah. They want to wait until the moment when you hear Leo's name to reveal that those scenes are flashbacks. Right. Although there is a little Easter egg, if you notice. And actually, I love the opening. I think it feels almost not of the genetic code of the West Wing. For sure. But I really like it. And I like how it leads out from a cramped, claustrophobic, chaotic situation that the pilots are in. Also, I think very well filmed and lit. The cinematography is great. I think you feel like you're in the cockpit and then goes to just a sort of a, you know, a, a charity gala. Mm -hmm. And you get that just feeling of the difference between, you know, the military itself and the people who make decisions about the military and that contrast. And so I, I, I liked the 
cold open very much. But there is a Alex Graves gives us a little Easter egg as he pans down briefly and lingers just a moment on the patch that's on the pilot's uh, uniform, right. the 333rd Fighter Squadron, uh, the Lancers. It's like a little Easter egg hunt if you bother to look it up or if you know, I guess, your military history that that was a squadron uh, in the Vietnam War. There's just a little hint. And also there's a little bit of a feel and a look that suggests that it's maybe not contemporary. Yeah. Ah, we've been hit! Bomb on Boston, Vito! Get off your wing. You've got two tanks near the fire. Drop it down. Hang out while I'm sick. We can both get out of the bed race. There was also a little bit of a head fake in the previously on, which is that it included a scene, the scene between Leo and President Bartlett at the bottom of the stairs. Me and Nancy and Fitz are standing right next to you. When you get information, you don't need to remember it. It sort of suggests that that's going to play in the coming episode. And I kept waiting for the moment where MS became pertinent, germane to the episode and never did. I kind of felt like, wow, they're even trying to fool us <laughs> with the previously on. Yeah. Or not thinking that much about what they should include. I also want to mention that uh, John Spencer was nominated for an Emmy for this episode. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I just mean he's very good. Yeah. He could be nominated really for any episode. Yeah. So what did you think about the trickiness of intercutting present day with what turns out to be a flashback, but you don't realize it's a flashback? Right, a flashback to a similar situation Yeah, during the Vietnam War. You know, and then flashes to the present tense with the two people who are in the flashback, Ken O'Neill and Leo. What did you think about it as a continuing device throughout the episode? Well, I guess the answer is that I liked the concept of going back and giving us a little bit of Leo's backstory, but I felt these scenes themselves were a little wan. Mm -hmm. They didn't particularly elevate the current story or, you know, it kind of... They weren't particularly revelatory. And one thing I did like was being able to see in flashback the payoff to something I bumped on initially, which is Leo, you know, giving this little speech and telling his little joke and fetting his dear friend. The finest man that I have ever had, the great privilege to call my friend, your own Kenneth Sean O'Neill. At the moment, I thought, hey, hang on a second. What about the president? You're right. He's got to be introducing President Bartlett this way. So, and that kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. Like, well, that's, that's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> like, where's your sense of loyalty? Yeah, right. And then to discover and then to see that this is the man who carried him bodily yeah. out of a life and death situation, I thought was great. I thought, okay, wow, there is a bond really even beyond uh, Leo Bartlett. The tension of the moment in a way was missing for me in a way that it was present in the cold open. Yeah, I thought that they pulled off a neat trick when they finally reveal that it is Leo in the flashback. Please. You gotta go. I'm not leaving you, Leo. Just don't forget it. Come on. Let's go. But then I felt like there was no need to return to them after that. Mm-hmm. Then it was sort of, okay, then we see them just, you know, continuing on. Yeah, good point. Diminishing returns. Yeah. Although I thought in a way, throughout this episode, there were kind of build-ups or builds-up mm. to disappointing reveals. Oh, you're talking about Ranger Ben. Certainly chief among them was Ranger Ben, which not only has been a multi-episode build-up, but Alex also films the reveal as we slowly creep into the room. He's talking to Carol, and then we kind of come around a corner at a glimpse of him, and it's Brian Kerwin. Yeah, and no <laughs> offense to Brian Kerwin. <laughs> right, exactly. He's both a, a, a good actor and a fine-looking gentleman, but like it needed to actually be Robert Redford. <laughs> or the Joker. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I was expecting at that point. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> Carol had been taken in. It turned out it was... Uh, oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 well, you certainly were expecting something more revelatory than... Huh. So that's Ben. Yeah, it's a guy. <laughs> yeah. Odd. Yeah. More odd even than a guy who carries around a photo of CJ in her bikini. God. She was something in a bikini, huh? You know, look, that was a bit disappointing, too. <laughs> it's like this guy, like this dashing guy. It's like Sir Lancelot finally arrives and goes, this. <laughs> Check out Guinevere. Guinevere, look day. at her. <laughs> look at this corset shot. Well, woo! <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I was like a little disappointed about the dashing Ben. I'm like, that's it? Oh, that's great. He's like, I, I keep a photo of my love in a locket. It's her in a bikini. <laughs> yeah, I was like, womp womp, to quote someone famous. Um, yeah, a little disappointing. But I also thought it was almost a recurring theme in the episode. I thought CJ finally decides to go on Taylor Reed and her, I guess, supposed thrashing of him. I'm going to reach down and rip off his puny little face. I also found a little bit less than satisfying. There was no knockout punch or anything. It felt more like maybe it was a technical win by points. Yes, well said. One, first of all, his show is just the worst of the worst. He's not even really there to interact. He's like hardly letting her get a word in. It's almost so cheap like why would she go on that show yeah it's like uh, accepting an invitation from alex jones or something like uh, there's no play ways to even respond substantively to what this guy is saying and then when she does you know yes she's she's very articulate and has a good little run but it's it isn't the knockout that we've come to expect yeah taylor reed i guess is based on bill o'reilly i can't really actually comment on how accurate it was because i never watched those shows I do on occasion. I'm neither a uh, hardcore listener. I like to watch Lawrence and I like Rachel Maddow and I like to see also uh, occasionally what's happening on the other side. So in, in small doses. And how, how did this feel to you? It felt like an exaggeration pushed beyond credibility, almost just because he, in the early segments, isn't really even letting her speak. You're not giving me a chance to answer. If you just want to bloviate, why don't I leave a cardboard cutout of myself and you can talk all you want? It's kind of just an overwrought version of uh, what you get on Fox News. I mean, there is usually a little more air given to the guest. I can't imagine why anybody would go on a show. I mean, I guess I think that's sometimes in Hannity as well. But the Taylor Reid show is a super intensified version of, I guess, what you see on Fox it does make me wonder about pundits who go on to shows, pundits who come from the administration or, you know, who are serving either for a political party or for an administration who then go on shows like that, where the odds are absolutely stacked against them in terms of the chance of them being able to make their point or convince anybody. I, I don't know if, I guess I, I always think that the idea of those shows is that someone's going to convince somebody else of some point of view, but that never happens. No, indeed not. There's a funny bit, I've been watching The Good Place, there's a funny joke about somebody on the internet having changed his mind because of an interaction. Like, it's the only time it ever happened. <laughs> right. yeah. it, it sort of it applies to this arena as well. But it makes me wonder why people do go on those shows. You know, I know there, there are audiences there, but, uh, but it just feels like volunteering to be a punching bag. Well, look, a lot of them are just, that's their bread and butter. They're the, yeah, you know, I'm the more right-leaning person who goes on CNN a lot and gets paid for it. And I, I understand what you're saying, if it's actually an administration representative. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Then it is more uh, of a head-scratcher. Yeah, is it just sort of, you try and deploy everyone you can across all media to try and get your message across yeah, I suppose so. There's a, uh, I guess, clearly an upside just to being represented and just to getting the uh, your message out anywhere. Yeah. Maybe you reach the uh, tiny fraction of that population who isn't right. the choir being preached to. That's watching. Right. You can find this, this small sliver of your choir that you can get to even in enemy territory. Yeah. I'll throw out two more reveals that were on the disappointing side to me. One was what happens in the Oval with Ryan and Josh. Oh, yeah. Not that it's a huge buildup, but you sort of get the feeling Ryan's in there for the first time, and Josh says, I'm going to take credit for your work. And so I think there was a little bit of an expectation built up that something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it was just a little bit of a, eh. What's the tax benefit for the typical family? About uh, $100 a year. Closer to 300 First of all, is Ryan's idea like, I think we can do both didn't seem like an incredible revelation or a master intellectual stroke of what he came up with. He just kind of, maybe there's compromise to be had here. Hmm. Well, the thing that struck me the most about that scene was not anything that Ryan did, but the idea that Josh would go into the Oval Office to brief the president and not be fully prepared. That seemed so out of character that it actually pulled me out of the episode. I was like, this would never happen. We know how I seriously agree. he takes his job. We know how seriously he takes briefing the president. The idea that he would go into the Oval Office to brief the president and not have the numbers down cold seemed crazy to me. Great 
point. I, I also bumped on that as well. I thought it, Josh walking to the Oval, as prepared as I am to get on mic with you to discuss an episode <laughs> of The West Wing, I don't buy it. I prepare even for meetings I don't want to go to. Yeah, that part felt unfair to that character and only as a means to have this moment for Ryan. I thought like a moment that should have felt maybe interesting or, or exciting or dramatic, it just was undercut by my disbelief. Yeah, well, I guess that's what really what I'm getting at is I, I felt like there were some mini flares being deployed that led me to think that there's something very significant is going to happen in the Oval. And I do agree that it was an under sort of undercutting Josh's character and what we've come to expect of him in a way that if you're going to at least do that, it should have paid off more. So I was like, I was like, ah, for this, you sort of gave us a, an unprepared Josh that is difficult to buy. Yeah. And then he's extremely petty. I mean, walking out of the room, what he should have said is something along the lines, you know, thanks for saving my ass. I didn't think Ryan like completely showed off, like, you're an idiot. I have the answers. You know, like, you know, I was a little unprepared. Thanks for having my back. Instead, yeah. it's he's just the pettiest of bosses ever. Xerox this. Front to back, double-sided and collating. Yeah, go wild. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. what an ass. Not a great showing for Josh. No, it really, it really isn't. Starting to feel like maybe everyone is a bit more of a prick in season five. I think that is true. And there are some, there's some value in that. I think in a sense, we're getting more human iterations of God heroes that we've been given. And so I think there's some value in that. People, the flaws showing and people's less admirable sides coming to the fore. But sometimes it's a, maybe a little bit too much, too much yeah. of a step in the other direction. I shouldn't say everyone. It's not everyone. It's really Josh and Toby. We've seen an edgier Leo as well, I think, in season five. Hmm. But you know who is definitely not more of a prick uh, this season is Carol, who is just continues to be delightful. She remains a bubbly delight. Yeah. And I think Donna is free from that as well. And this episode, I feel so bad for her too. You know, she rightly... I think, objects to the fact that uh, she says, hey, why does Ryan get to go brief the president? I'm sitting here, you know, arranging your calls. Mm -hmm. And Josh doesn't think anything of it. But I think that, yeah, that's the kind of thing that would definitely be understandable, that personal affront of being passed over for a chance to be in the Oval Office with the president. Especially as in recent times, we've seen her be truly capable in the way she handled the uh, pardons, and uh, she's been given more responsibility and come through with shining colors every time. Yeah, but most of those moments have occurred in, yeah, in conference rooms, not in the Oval Office. Indeed. While we're going through the characters, Will now is essentially Ryan, except that Ryan in this one has a plot. <laughs> Will is the new Ryan. Uh, and I'm having an interesting experience watching these episodes. And now, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure I'm rewatching. I, I think I may be watching episodes for the first time. Yeah. At least some of them. And I'm feeling an aggravation on my own behalf that I really didn't feel at the time of the shooting of these episodes. Really? And I, yeah. So I'm really, I'm having to, I'm going through some introspection. And I think, I think what I have in place is a very good self protection system. So I think. I certainly noticed while we were filming season five that my role in the show had diminished and certainly my importance, the importance of the character altogether was becoming less important to the show. Yeah. But at the time, one, it's just the way I approach this kind of work is it is what it is, mm -hmm. not my job to... Uh, lobby for storylines or for more work and uh you know i had young kids i think they were six and two at the time of the shooting so more time at home while getting paid the same amount of money was fine with me and also i think there's a defense mechanism which is you know who, nobody wants to be miserable i don't want to spend time worrying about my storyline or this or that so i just focused on the positive aspects of having a job altogether and having more time with my family but now as i rewatch, it is a bummer to me i find myself a little bit aggravated and sad that this character that aaron had created for me is so reduced you know to a handful of lines and just kind of wandering around and uh i can almost feel the effort to include me in this episode there's really no reason for Will to be there at all. Yeah. Have you ever talked to Dulé about this? Because I, Charlie, you know, suffered from being underused a lot as well. I mean, throughout the five seasons, Aaron told us, you know, they often found that the Charlie storylines would be written, but then they would end up getting cut from the episode for time or, or he wouldn't be used. There would just wouldn't be something there for, for his character that would be so interesting. 
Have you ever talked about that? No, I don't think I have. It, it would be interesting next time we have him on, although I'm sure we'll have him on for an episode in which he figures prominently. But right. we'll, we'll have to uh, put the question to him. And maybe I think it's just, I love Dulé and I love Charlie. And I feel like there's so much richness to his character. I feel like w- Will and I had a little bit less time before I, my role started to be diminished. And even when I see Charlie, you at least know why he's there. I mean, he's doing important things. He... He walks into the mm. president's bedroom mm-hmm. to say the general is out there. Like, yeah, at least there's a reason for him to be there. He is integral to this White House and to this staff. Right. And there's so much kind of rich relationship work that's been done between the president, particularly, and Charlie, that I still see it and feel it even when he's on screen briefly. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit before, but along these lines. How crazy is it that the same level of involvement is also given to Lily Tomlin? Oh, I agree. I I think that over and over, and I know we have touched on it. Yeah. Like that she would show up for a couple moments here and there of secretarial work. Exactly. Yeah. She has like a handful of lines and that's it. Although she does have some pretty good ones. Yes. My favorite moment, I think, from the entire episode is uh, when Toby is pacing and trying to get into the Oval Office to meet with the president. And he's asking Debbie, he's haranguing her, you know, about how long it's going to take. And then she just says, You have some food stuck in your beard. (laughs) Yes. And then it's fun to watch Richard over the next 30 seconds, sort of kind of uh, just his his reaction and uh, (laughs) tending to his beard is is great. Yeah. He's he's a little bit out of focus in the background, but then you finally see him. You start to brush away at it. (laughs) That's right. He doesn't go to it immediately. All right. Uh, All right. It's a better rejoinder than, um, actually, it's President Bartlett, you know, to say, actually. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, President something in my beard. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been good if uh, CJ used that on Taylor Reed. I wrote down, Will is reduced to scut work, which is my new favorite phrase that I I don't think I was aware of before. Scut work. I like it. Um, And definitely non-presidential scut work. Not even right. really vice presidential scut work. No, exactly. I watched it, and when I showed up on screen, I thought, oh, what does that guy do again? <laughs> <laughs> and it really, in the episode, the role is, uh, hey, he's right. Hey, have you seen this thing? Oh, this guy's already looking at it, and I agree with what he said. Right. Okay, let's turn to the main plot of the episode, which we haven't really discussed yet, which is the man who saved Leo's life in Vietnam, Ken O'Neill, is now involved in this defense contract that a senator is objecting to and holding up. It's a senator who's played by the great Philip Baker Hall. Oh, oh what a wonderful actor. He's up there in my list of uh, favorite character actors. Have you seen Hard Eight? I have. I love, I love Hard Eight. Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature film, I highly recommend it, and a wonderful, truly wonderful performance by Philip Baker Hall. He's a legend. By the way, Jeffrey DeMunn, who plays Kenny O'Neill, also no slouch and uh, was uh, particularly memorable to me as Dale in The Walking Dead. Mm. Good actor. So Philip Baker Hall plays Matt Hunt in this episode, a senator from Arizona. And if that makes you think of John McCain, I think there's a very good reason. Yes. Because this entire plot line is inspired, it seems like, by an incident in 2003 in which John McCain was trying to block a proposal by the Air Force to lease a fleet of Boeing 767 tankers. The substance of that event are really similar to what's going on here. There's a competing bid by Airbus in both the show and in real life, and the Air Force ignored this other proposal. And in this episode, Ken O'Neill is the CEO of Mueller Wright. I kept wondering, there's all these, uh, there is, I mean, obviously also the idea of paralleling John McCain as he was laid to rest yesterday. There's always all these odd things that overlap. Yeah. And seeing Mueller write, I kept wanting to say, no, it's Mueller. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Mueller. On that note, let's take a quick break. Support for the West Wing Weekly is brought to you by Simply Safe. Home security done right. Simply Safe is home security you'll actually love using. It's really thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice. It's got all kinds of great little touches like gentle reminders if you're leaving the house with a window open. And most importantly, Simply Safe is really good at its job. CNET, The Wirecutter, and PC Mag all named it their top pick for home security. Over 2 million people use it every day. 
Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you today. Go to simplysafe.com/westwing. That's s i m p l i s a f e.com/westwing. The Westwing Weekly is brought to you by Squarespace. They are the engine behind our website. It's true. And they could be the engine behind your website too for whatever you need, whether it's for your business or your art or some other pursuit that you want to put out there in the world. That's right. If you've ever thought about having an online presence, Squarespace will make it fun and easy to realize your dream. They make it easy by giving you beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers. So even if you don't know anything about web design, you can make a website that looks professional and it's actually easy to use behind the scenes. That's right. And they've got things like free and secure hosting, built-in SEO, that's search engine optimization. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever, and there's 24/7 award-winning customer support. So go ahead and make your website. There's no harm in trying because right now you can actually get a free trial by going to squarespace.com/westwing. And then when you're ready to launch, if you use the offer code Westwing, you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's squarespace.com/westwing. And now back to the show. I think that the heart of this story is really about loyalty and the lengths to which we're willing to go out of loyalty, which is not an uncommon theme for the West Wing. But here, Leo's loyalty for Ken is so strong that he is ready to go to bat for him without even questioning the idea that maybe he had engaged in wrongdoing. People try and stop Leo at several points. You work for Mueller, right? If they're involved in procurement irregularities, any attempt on your part to impede us... I'm not going to... How many years did you work for Mueller Wright? Was it 10, 12? Don't try to embarrass me. Have you asked Kenny if there's any truth? I've known Ken O'Neill for 35 years. I worked beside him, served beside him. He hasn't done anything wrong. He just is adamant that there's no way this person who he admires so much and, and respects uh, could have possibly done something immoral. Yeah, no, in that sense, it actually, uh, uh, as I watched the second time, it rang bells for me almost with Me Too movement and how charges constantly come up and we have sort of a macro reaction to believing charges. Not, not that this is a similar situation, but believing victims. And then almost every time there's somebody who knows the person being accused who cannot, just on the face of it, accept the possibility of wrongdoing. So you know that these things, when we have personal connections, we do have personal loyalties and bonds and relationships that sometimes do not allow us to see those that we love and are so close to fully. Mm-hmm. Leo owes his life to this person. He's got that military bond, of which I can only imagine is you know one of the tightest, closest things, having even been in situations like that together. And then truly to know that this person saved his life, it prevents him from viewing the man as he is today, fully. Mm-hmm. At the heart of the controversy is this document in AOA, which I don't believe is ever explained in the episode, but it's a, AOA stands for Analysis of Alternatives. Due diligence that the the price is right. Right. You can use those other bids to negotiate with even the person who you have ultimately decided you're going to go with to try and lower the price. And it turns out that Ken Mueller has bribed a person in the defense department and given him a job at his company. And not only that, he gave him an advance on the salary. So it's really just a bribe. Yes, and and not a subtle one at that. I'm amazed often at the Duncan Hunters of the world and these people who get caught having done just egregiously wrong things, having not even covered them well. So I think it's fully credible, this storyline, the corruption in politics and sometimes the blatant nature of it should no longer shock, but it often does to me. This whole Kenny O'Neill plot felt like, you know, how how else was this going to wind up? Mm-hmm. But that happens again and again. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, McCain vibe to this episode. John McCain was shot down over Hanoi. So they, even though that's not, it's Hunt is not directly involved, obviously, in that storyline. And he serves on armed services, mm-hmm. which eventually John McCain was the chairman of the armed services committee. And I read in his obituary that he considered that position second only to being the commander in chief. Interesting. 
And as much as I like Philip Baker Hall as our sort of John McCain stand-in, I wonder what the value of the second scene between him and Josh was, because to me, it robbed us once again of a satisfying reveal. I really think that the episode would have been elevated had that scene been excised and had we found out in the Leo Kenny scene, had we only found out during that scene that Kenny was guilty. Hmm. You wanted to wait until that final well, what is the value of our knowing going into that scene what Leo doesn't know? Why not experience it as Leo experiences it? Why don't we, why don't we walk in thinking that Leo is still right? Thinking that Leo is right because we trust Leo and we trust Leo's judgment and we've learned, we've been told that Kenny O'Neill is this paragon of virtue and this stand-up kind of guy who couldn't possibly have done what he's being accused of. And I would rather have learned it from Kenny. It would have been, I think, just a more difficult, painful, compelling scene rather than our walking in and just waiting to see the scales fall from Leo's eyes. That's interesting. Anytime that the audience already knows what the conclusion is going to be, it puts this additional pressure on the storytelling itself. And I think you felt that this episode cracked under that pressure. Yeah, I think so. I think that, right, the pressure was released in a way that didn't dramatically have value for me. And now that you mentioned, I think almost splitting the difference might have been the way to go so that we have that scene between, the second scene between Hunt and Lyman, but rather than explicitly being told the situation, we could have gotten an adumbration of what was to come, a sort of sense that Hunt has something to tell Josh. He's clearly, you know, he, he shows up unannounced. Josh wasn't even expecting him. And he's apologetic. And it's maybe ought better to have ended on, there's something I need to tell you, or something like that, that gives us just a little, mm -hmm. a little spark, a little frisson of what's right. to come, but not the whole enchilada. By the way, we don't know what's going to happen to Ken O'Neill, but in 2003, this Boeing incident, it ended up with the uh, Boeing CEO resigning, which I think is probably going to happen here. I think Ken O'Neill even knows that the curtains are coming for him. Seems it. Well, to mix my metaphors. Uh, I've been doing the same. God. The whole enchilada. <laughs> and then the, the person at the Pentagon ended up going to jail. Oh. Yeah, so bad things are coming down the line for Ken O'Neill. And even though we don't see it, Leo knows it. And that leads to his um, the final scene with the president, which is really, I mean, let's give the man the Emmy for that. His, him just taking in the idea that this person that he loves has fallen from grace. We had a responsibility to live our lives with integrity and honesty to honor their sacrifice. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable performance, as always, from John Spencer. And there almost was, I have to go back and watch, but I felt like there was, even physically, a similarity in Leo's countenance that bookended the episode early on in that cold open when Leo is introducing Kenny. His face crinkles with laughter and delight. He has such joy <laughs> to be introducing his friend, this man he loves. Almost his features disappear in just full-on Leo crinkle face. Yeah, smiley crinkle face. Smiley crinkle face, and then we get despondent crinkle face <laughs> towards the end, I think is the technical term. Yeah. Um, there's almost something even brilliant to that, <laughs> that Leo in... Uh, the depths of despair almost echoes the celebratory delight that we saw him experience earlier in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking on the um, Television Academy website right here, and it says that John Spencer was nominated for Best Despondent Crinkly Face <laughs> and Best Smiley Crinkly Face in a single episode. Wow. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking about... Almost immediately after watching this episode, the first time I was watching something else in which a character is supposed to be crying, and um, it was so bad. I mean, you know, the person tried their best to do a crinkly face, but certainly no <laughs> water was coming out of there. It just was not believable at all. I was, like, I was like, what is this? And I think Lindsay said to me, they're not all John Spencer. Yeah, indeed. He is sorely missed, uh, the man himself, and, and what an actor he was. Is that not the worst thing most consistently done on TV is having characters crying and the actors just can't pull it off? Sure, especially when there is shit they can blow in your eyes that makes you cry. 
I mean, literally, I was going to say to the makeup people, could you blow some talent into my eyes? <laughs> I was thinking about that. This guy should have asked for that. Yeah. Man up. Stick your finger in your eye, at least. <laughs> One other thing that I had trouble with during this episode is a mi minor thing, but uh, Philip Baker Hall's character is Matt Hunt. The amendment that Ryan is briefing the president about comes from someone named Went. And I a few times got confused, but you know, just the Hunt and Went names were similar enough that I got a little bit confused when they were going back and forth. And especially before we first met Philip Baker Hall, and we didn't have a face for either of these names. I was thinking, wait, this was the same, which guy is the, you know, is the mm -hmm. tax break for housewives person? And which one is the, I just right. got confused a few See, times. I just kept thinking of George Went and Mike Hunt. <laughs> Josh. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for the space, at least. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I did it like February. <laughs> also, here's one thing, uh, a little Trump I-I-I moment. I mm. noticed early in the episode, in the sit room, when the powers that be are looking to the commander-in-chief, President Bartlett, to okay the mission, to give the final, like, let's do this, mm -hmm. he simply nods. And first I thought, I wonder whether that even is... Can you really do that? Or would somebody say, right. just to be entirely sure, you're saying we should start, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Please do not sign this contract with a crayon. Right, exactly. But then it actually made me think of the recent statement by George Papadopoulos's lawyers. From Webster? <laughs> uh, no, but I like the reference. <laughs> right. So yeah, George Papadopoulos, uh, former Trump campaign aid of either great or minor importance, depending on who's describing him. According to his lawyers now, Trump indicated approval of the concept of setting up a meeting with Putin by nodding. Here's the quote. Mr. Trump nodded with approval and deferred to Mr. Sessions, that's then Senator from Alabama, Jeff Sessions, now AG, who appeared to like the idea and stated that the campaign should look into it. So apparently nods, I mean, when I first heard that statement from the lawyers, I was like, eh, that's not going to amount to much, like someone claiming he nodded. But in the West Wing, we get uh, the president uh, deploying troops with a nod. Yeah. You know where a nod is not enough is uh, when you're seated in the exit row and they ask if you understand the instructions and you'll comply with the, you know, placards, whatever, and uh, you have to say yes. Bubbling. Very good. I think that may even have been bubbling in my subconscious when I watched that moment in the sit room and I thought, they're not going to make him say yes. I think I think part of me was thinking, I had to do it in the exit row. Right. <laughs> Very good point. That's fantastic. As is often the case in the West Wing, sometimes the smallest moments give me the most in an episode and rather than some big explicit denouement to the entire episode it's just yeah. a little thing that's almost quickly brushed by and that was the fact that there was the loss of life uh, a navy seal died yeah in the extraction and i was moved by it just generally obviously loss of life but almost i liked the way Alex and John Wells dealt with the moment, which is they didn't make a meal out of it. Mm. It was the cost of the operation. And they do, you know, we can see in their faces that it's a loss. And uh, Ron Canada and President Bartlett, they have a moment, but then they just sort of move on with the rest of what happened. General, can you give me a number for Captain Zaretsky's family? The Navy SEAL who dies, he dies of hypoxia from the jump. It is not from enemy fire or, or anything like that. It's just a really thing that happened. Yeah, they did a halo jump, high altitude, low opening jump, and apparently that can lead to hypoxia. And that made me think of the former Thai Navy SEAL, a guy named Saman Kunan, who died... Rescuing the boys? Right, rescuing the boys, or even just laying the groundwork, trying to, right. uh, you know, ironically and tragically, trying to provide oxygen for the eventual rescue. He died from, also, like a similar to hypoxia, a, a lack of oxygen. Yeah. And, you know, what we now generally think of as just this enormous success against all odds miracle. You have to remember a man gave his life in the effort, and it's easy to sort of forget that aspect or gloss over it. Yeah. But did you think of uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash? I thought it was too bad that they came to the White House and we didn't get to see them. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a big I, thing to happen off camera. I felt the same thing, too. You're going to name check it and then use their work. And I'm like, well, well where, where are they? <laughs> 
It's like, oh, you just missed them. Yeah. I think it's another another missed reveal, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. They should have just cut to Brian Kerwin <laughs> singing, <laughs> singing America. <laughs> the camera turns around the frame of the door slowly to reveal... <laughs> It's three Brian Kerwins instead of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Again, no offense to Brian Kerwin. Terrific actor. Major stage career. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's Brian's Kerwin. Yes, good point. The presidential portlet. Wow. The presidential portrait. Portlet. Subplot. (laughs) They're painting my portlet. (laughs) The portlet of President Partlet is just uh, running throughout the series, and I don't know what, like... What is going to happen with it? Why have we talked about it so much? Another, I feel that we are being set up for another disappointing reveal. Or, or maybe... <laughs> maybe he will pose nude. It will, exactly, it will be a nude. That is a great moment. When am I supposed to find time to sit for some cut-rate Rubens while he angles me just so to catch the late afternoon light? You do know it's not a nude, right? Now, now I'm envisioning him in that Nastasia Kinski python shot but <laughs> president bartlett has said if somebody please would put that together i'd like to post it on our site oh wow <laughs> it's a big wow. ask <laughs> that is a big ask i did read that crosby stills and nash performed that version of america on the tonight show when the tonight show returned for the first time after 9 11 oh wow land where my fathers died land of the I like that that Carol has spent so much time fielding calls from Ben for CJ that she now has a relationship with him of her own. And I liked uh, I like that she finally said, "If you're not going to go for it, can I have him?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a great line. Uh, CJ says, "Oh, he and, he and Katie split up," and Carol's like, "Katie's living in Portland with an orthodontist." Carol's on a first name basis. Yeah, with she's got the CJ's ex boyfriend's ex wife. <laughs> One of the things that didn't work for me. I don't like it when a show tells me that a thing is supposed to be funny and then they tell me the thing that was supposed to be funny because it's... So wait, what was that instance? When Toby and Josh are in CJ's office telling her about Taylor Reed and, and, you know, trying to encourage her to go on the show. Oh. He says, Taylor Reed was talking about your spin on the decline in manufacturing jobs and he said... (laughs) The tall lady's back to telling tall tales. I completely agree. I'm like, that. what a knee slapper. Like, don't let her know he said this because it's hilarious and cutting. I was like, that's really dumb. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I also felt we should have gotten a decent setup to the mulligan joke in the cold open. So, so he says, that's my mulligan. And I say, but you've already taken your mulligan. Yeah, Kenny says, but we're playing Texas rules. <laughs> Yeah, that also felt like we're supposed to laugh at that. And really, it must have been hilarious because the happy crinkly face is so extreme. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen Leo this happy ever before in his life. No, no, indeed not. I thought that the loyalty part, this idea of sort of blind loyalty that Leo exhibits in in this episode and really throughout the time that we've known him, I think a, a little bit of that is carried by Josh, too. You know, Josh is another person who absolutely will be loyal to the people who mean a lot to him. And I think that colors his reaction to Ryan Pierce's undercutting of him. Mm. If there were a more dignified version of his objection, it might have actually felt closer to what Leo is experiencing, you know, which is, look, you're supposed to have my back. There's also a little bit of Josh being guilty of what Leo is guilty of in his effort to stop Leo. Everyone is so gentle with Leo about Ken O'Neill, and I and it makes sense given his history with the man and and everything. But at a certain point, what Ryan does is is right. He you know they're in that meeting with the president rather than waiting till afterwards to say, "Hey, Josh, you got that wrong. Maybe you should go back in there." In the in the critical moment, he says, "Actually, well, here's here's yeah, what he the steps right information is," and no one really does that for Leo. They try, and but but there are several moments where Josh kind of just shuts up. Out of deference. Yeah. In his defense, in his defense, he makes a call that Leo doesn't take as he approaches Kenny O'Neill. So Josh <laughs> That's had true. made one effort. Well, we can we are led to assume that Josh was going to say, hey, 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 you got to know this. Yeah, that's true. But in the end, it's actually Ken O'Neill himself 
who tells Leo, You can't testify. If it comes to that, I can handle Hunt. You can't testify. It's really Leo's unknowing offer to sacrifice himself that prompts Ken O'Neill to um, reveal his own complicity. Yeah. I also thought during that scene, especially walking in with the knowledge uh, that Leo didn't have, that we as the viewers did have, that were Kenny to reveal the truth, as he indeed does, that he might do it in a more oblique fashion so as to give Leo plausible deniability. Mm. I, I kind of was surprised that he just says it. We didn't do the AOA. I gave a procurement officer at the DOD a job. And I... I got to a guy on the defense policy board. I thought there was a, a way to write around it, maybe. I think the reason why he does that is some level of sacrifice. Like, he is, he is going to now sort of knowingly tarnish his reputation with his dear friend. He's going to say, hey, look, okay, these are the facts of my transgression. Because at that point, suddenly Leo has said, hey, I'm willing to do this. I'm going to go up there in front of the Armed Services Committee. And suddenly Ken has this reaction. He says, no, you can't do it. You can't testify. So that even in adversity or even as he admits having transgressed that he acts with some integrity. Yeah, I think so. So I just kept thinking now when Leo subpoenaed, he's going to have to, he knows. (laughs) He knows the truth. I think, you know, Matt Hunt also says to Josh, he's like, I don't want to subpoena him. I think they, they all want to save right. Leo they're trying to from protect this. Uh, Leo. Yeah. yeah. But I do think that there's something noble about Ken O'Neill's reaction, you know, to the, this offer from Leo. And that that's what prompts him to be like, no, I did it. Mm-hmm. And you can't put yourself out there like that for me. But ultimately, it's Leo, really, who calls him out for how hollow the whole thing is. So this was about money? After everything that they've been through, Ken was saying, oh, I had all this pressure from stockholders and and responsibility to the employees. But really, it is about making sure that Mueller-Wright gets awarded the contract so that they have some level of profitability that, you know, they didn't have over whatever. So he can keep his job as the CEO. And so it's about money. And Leo asks him, he says, how much money did you make? Yeah, he makes him say it. How much, Kenny? Just over a million. (laughs) How much with bonuses? 11 million. And it is just, I think, maybe even worse than the fact of the wrongdoing for Leo. The, the root of it being about money is what really crushes him. That there, there is no noble intent underneath all of it. You know, like, oh, maybe he had some inside, inf- I don't know. But, like, you know, maybe there was some possible layer behind all of this. Oh, that could make him understand. Yeah, that could a somehow... better. Yeah, exactly. The man who steals bread to feed his family. There's nothing like that here. It's millionaires. He's no Jean Valjean. No, Ken O'Neill would be in Les Millionables. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's really what crushes him, this idea that they had this responsibility to live their lives with in- integrity. This is also the really poignant thing about the seal who died from hypoxia, you know, which further ties in this present-day rescue mission with the, the mission from Vietnam. The crew members in North Korea you know, ought to feel the same kind of responsibility out of respect for the memory of this Navy SEAL who died trying to save them. Good connection. So to smirch that Smirch? Besmirch? Besmirch. To... Can you smirch something? <laughs> Papa Smirch. Ron Klain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to smirch. Make something dirty or soil it. The window was smirched by heat and smoke. Oh, I'm going to start using that. So can I, I use it again? All right. So to smirch... Mm, smirchandise. <laughs> just a, just a, we should start selling just a filthy t-shirt. Oh, man. It feels... Like, there's no way it could possibly be his friend who had that oath. And that's really what crushes him. And then the president, <laughs> you know, the thing that you always want to hear from your friend when, you t- when you're going through something painful is uh, for them to speak to you in Latin. We had a responsibility to live our lives with integrity and honesty to honor their sacrifice. Corruptio optimi pessima. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, for the love of God, would you can the Latin and just talk to me like a person? 
it doesn't feel like the right time to be quoting Latin. It would have been great if Leo had responded with, give me a f***ing break in Latin. (laughs) I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, but it feels less poignant to reach for an epigram than just to say something, I don't know, heartfelt back. That's interesting. Well, maybe that's a uh, a weakness in Bartlett's social game. Mm, It's no, um, I'm proud of you, Charlie. That's right. (laughs) What if he had said, uh, I'm proud of you, Charlie, in Latin? In Latin. (laughs) And Leah would be like, I don't speak Latin, but I know what Charlie means. <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> what the hell? Okay, that wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. The West Wing Weekly remains, as always, a proud member of Radiotopia, a collection of fine podcasts about which you can find out more information at radiotopia.fm. Thanks to Margaret Miller and Zach McNeese for their help with this episode. Also, thanks to Nick Song, who helped us with research. Right on. You can follow The West Wing Weekly on Twitter at West Wing Weekly. We're on Instagram at The West Wing Weekly. We're on Facebook. And um, you can talk to us. Tell us your thoughts about this episode. Tell us what we got wrong. Or tell us what you liked. Sure. Do the second thing. Yeah. And if you'd like to support the show and our long, slow crawl over the finish line, you can donate money on our website. Or you can buy merchandise <laughs> at westwingweekly.com slash smirch. <laughs> okay. Okay, what's What's next? next? Hey, have you been searching for a new podcast? I bet you have. If you aren't already listening to The Illusionist, you should be by now. It is one of the best podcasts. It's on Radiotopia. Helen Zaltzman has been a guest on our show. You heard her in our live Big Block of Cheese episode from San Francisco. She's one of our podcast BFFs and really one of my BFFs in general. She's a gem. And you should be listening to her show. And not only that, you should go see her live. Her live shows are hilarious and informative. It's like perhaps if a librarian tried to do cabaret in a village hall. (laughs) And on top of that, Helen's equally delightful husband, Martin, is her musical accompanist. And they have great stage banter, too. So get out and see them. We're going to go. We're going to go to see Helen's show in Los Angeles. But she's not just playing in Los Angeles. She's got dates coming up in the UK, uh, London, Glasgow, and Bristol, plus Dublin, Ireland. And in October, uh, you can catch The Illusionist Live in Austin, D.C., Philly, New York, Boston. We're going to catch her in November, during which month she'll be in Toronto, Seattle, Portland, and L.A., Wherever you are, find your way to an Illusionist live show and obviously listen to the podcast. You can find information and all of the ticket links at illusionist.org. And Illusionist, if you haven't figured it out already, is Illusionist with an A, Illusionist, because she's uh, talking about words. Come hang out with me and Josh at the LA show on November 13th. Once again, go to theillusionist.org slash events. See you there. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.